Good afternoon, everybody. This is Christian Thwaites of Brown Janikowski. Uh, welcome to our May market update. Um, I'd like to thank Carolyn and Neil for, for putting all their logistics together, and she's um, going to be communicating with, uh, with me and, and us um, if there's any, any glitches. Hopefully, you can see the screen in front of you. Uh, that, interestingly, is a, is a, is a sculpture, a, a, a natural sculpture by an artist called Andy Goldsworthy. It's in the Presidio, and it's uh, kind of an interesting uh, story about the kind of transitory effects of nature, but some of you might recognize that from the um, who live in the city. Okay, um, well, let's, uh, let, let's, let's move ahead. So here we are in May, and uh, just kind of give you a, a quick update of, of where we are. Now, I did originally talk, talk about this as being the, uh, you know, what are we going to do with the, uh, what would be the effect of these stimulus plans? Uh, on the investments, and that was about two weeks ago. Um, clearly, with the big ones, the uh, the the, the uh, infrastructure plan uh, and the sort of em employment plan, which is, which one's name is, but it's uh, is to do with more uh, supports and and benefits, um, haven't come through yet. So uh, so we don't know quite yet what they are. But I I think the concern about them being inflationary is well overdone and I, and I think that's going to be a constant theme of hear me talk about today so the, the stimulus that we've got in part right in place right now is the one that came through in February and March and most of those benefits have hit already that's been quite a quick push through to the consumer and again I'll show you some slides which uh, which show what's going on there um, so the economic growth has started um, we've uh, we've seen that in the trade numbers now the trade numbers funnily enough are actually a net negative to the uh, to the GDP calculations, but what I was looking at was uh, was imports. Um, clearly, there's a there's a big demand for uh, manufactured good imports right now, consumer goods as well as other uh, partly manufactured goods. We've also seen it in the ISM surveys. ISM Institute of Supply Management does a big survey of manufacturing companies and service companies once every month, and it's really a a kind of optimism index. And those have been very strong, uh, very positive um, for the last uh, couple of months. They continue to be that way. Um, the consumer is sitting on absolute record record amounts of cash. Now, part, part of that is um, not an opportunity to spend what they have. And part of that is uh, because of the um, benefits programs, uh, the $1,400 check stimulus obviously being a very big one, which has been in most cases uh, saved or to pay down debt, which is the same thing when it comes to um, uh, looking at uh, the national savings, but uh, but, but na national savings uh, are very high in dollar amounts, also as a, uh, as a uh, as, as measured by the savings ratio, which is the difference between all of savings, sorry, all of uh, earnings and all of spending. The gap between them is the savings number. Um, there's a huge pent up demand for services, goods less so because most people are able to satisfy their need for goods, you know, shopping, autos. Uh, appliances, cars, um, sorry, um, houses, uh, but you know, services, and you can think of everything from medical care to anything which is consumer-facing. The obvious ones being the leisure industry, but uh, but uh, but many of these uh, industries may not be ready for the demand which is going to hit them. So that might cause some uh, short-term supply issues, which you've already seen, uh, as well as some potential inflation spikes here and there. We have 114 million people vaccinated out of a population of about 310, of which the adult population is about 280. Uh, take away the kids and the uh, um, and the, the ones which are in institutions, uh, and you're about about 270 million. So you're so that's up 40 million over the month. Um, so that's been an incredible rate. Uh, in fact, the level of daily vaccination vaccination declined slightly, but. Uh, I don't know whether it's herd immunity or not, but it's a lot of people, and so we've had a, you know, a tremendous uh, bounce back uh, in in uh, in vaccinations, and therefore fear of COVID is uh, is is on the decline. Employment is steadily increasing. Uh, the April jobs numbers, I'll focus on that in a little bit, was unexpectedly low, uh, but I think revived demand will help. Plus, there's still some dislocations in the labour market, which I think are fairly easily explained. There's no big puzzle about. There's no big mystery. What happened on Friday? I think you want to don't spend. I want to sort of debunk the, the the theories that are around about why the number was as low as it was. Uh, the Fed is still on the data watch. There was another uh, speech today by Lael Brennard. She is, if you're going to follow a Fed governor other than uh, Jay Powell, she's the one to follow. She's um, she's a permanent governor, which means she was elected by 
the president or pushed forward by the president confirmed by Congress. She's not from one of the uh, regional feds. She's very, very good. Uh, and again, she's uh, she was on quote today as saying that the inflation is temporary transitory. Her words are transitory rather than temporary, but effect they mean almost the same thing in terms of uh, we're not going to see permanent spikes uh, in inflation. Now we do have some some in the market. Uh, these were still around um, a month ago. Cryptos, uh, you know, the, uh, the the various SPACs, which are the special purpose acquisition companies, which kind of reverse IPOs, IPOs themselves. Um, and then we had this, uh, you know, big family hedge fund um, blow up uh, about a month ago. Um, so there's still some of that around. Um, again, I don't think it's too much to worry about. Um, maybe I'm a little bit being a sanguine on that, but it's, it's focused. It's not a not across the entire market. And most importantly, the most important thing, I think, if you're going to sort of look, go around bubble watching is to see if there's a lot of leverage in the system. Uh, and, there, and there really isn't. Let's just have a look. Um, we seem to be in the final stretches here. This is from our friends at Pantheon Economics. And they've been doing a three times a week report on COVID-19 progress support um, and uh, sort of data. And they've announced this Thursday they're going to stop doing that report. So uh, that tells you that uh, you know we're sort of in the in the area right down at the bottom there where uh, you know we're down almost to where we started uh, um, 15 months ago if you can believe so um, and before the uh, the spike that happened in, in the fall so uh, these are the deaths that are currently hospitalized and the confirmed cases it's really the confirmed cases that matter because the other two are going to be somewhat lagging indicators um, if you think about it it makes sense but. Um, but the, the confirmed cases is is now uh, running about 30, 35,000. Remember, we peaked uh, 200,000. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big uh, improvement. Uh, just to kind of show, this is where we were back in January, to kind of show where we were a little bit worried about the recent spike. And there's the United States, uh, you know, comfortably ahead, not in a good way, of the European Union, Italy, France, and Germany, as many of you know. That story has, I just need to get change my... Uh, Thing is in the way. One second. Um, this is I've showed the arrow from where it is in January. That's just the, the slide we just saw, and then you can see over on the right-hand side here's the United States. You know, way down. These are seven-day rolling averages of new cases per hundred thousand. So you know, you take the seven-day average because you don't want to there's less admissions on things like weekends, um, and uh, you don't want to do it as a proportion of population. So the United States is. Uh, is uh, uh, above the UK, but uh, you know, ahead of Italy, Germany, uh, and the Euro European Union. So, um, as we know, the European Union was very good on the lockdown, less so on the vaccinations, um, and that's meant that the deceleration in um, in case numbers for the United States has been quite a bit swifter. So, uh, so the so <laughs> the bottom line is we're in pretty good shape here. Um, particularly compared to the big uh, economic blocks. So I haven't put China and Japan in here for obvious reasons. Um, problem here we are. Uh, this is the, uh, the, 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 the big states. So this is the uh, Florida, New York, Texas, California, obviously. Uh, and these are, you know, it's California way at the bottom there. Um, these are all kind of going in the right direction. So you've kind of got two states which were fairly uh, adamant and, and strict about lockdown, two states that weren't. <laughs> um, I just came back from Texas and uh, hadn't, well, not having been out of California in about 16 months, um, you know, it was interesting to see fairly crowded restaurants and, uh, you know, people out on the streets. And that, and that was in Austin, which is not, which is not Texas as a whole. So uh, the point about this is that this is, you know, around about 40% of the population, 40% of GDP. Uh, and these uh, these improvements are real and uh, and and getting you know very much better. So what's been happening uh, in the markets? Well, uh, the first kickoff first is to get the ten-year Treasury yield. This is kind of our go-to uh, benchmark um, financial market indicator. So beginning of the year, uh, we uh, well last year we saw rates obviously plummet from about two down to about 0.5% at the beginning of this year. The rates had backed up a little to about 0.9. They rallied, you can see right here, they got high as about 175. It might've touched 180 for a day or two, about a month, six weeks ago. But now they're down to about 1.6%. So they're, you know, they're, what's the next level? Uh, I don't know, it's always a bit risky to kind of take a, take a, um, 
a guess on where uh, long-term rates are, are going to be, but I would say that they're probably likely to travel within this uh, relatively narrow band of about 150 to 180, which doesn't, which sounds like a, a big band, but it's only 30 basis points and that can move very, you know, very quickly. So uh, we really don't expect the uh, 10 year rate to, uh, to change very much. And why is that? Well, uh, first of all, you know, big lover of history kind of have to go back and say what's been happening for the last 30 years. And so, you know, for many of us who might have started our careers when the 10 year treasury rate was 15%, it's obviously been on a steadily steady decline ever since. This is, this is a big secular change and it's for a number of reasons, including you know, much, much lower inflation, faster economic growth, uh, more employment, more competition, trade, globalization, call it what you will. But there's lots of you know, reasons why the 10-year uh, the, the, the uh, normal and real rate has fallen down. And I just cannot see it moving back up you know, steadily. Now, you know, if, we look, if we go back to 2010, we can see that uh, you know, it was between about 175 and 3%. And that might be a kind of a long-term goal here. But uh, you know, 4, 5, and then back to the mid-90s when it was 6 and 7 just seems to me an incredible stretch uh, to see that to see that likely going. If that does go on, then you can expect economic growth to be like it was in the 90s, where it was four, five, and four, five percent real GDP, not one and a half, two, which is what we've had, you know, for most of this uh, post GFC period up to up to the last uh, 12 months, which has obviously been a huge outlier. Um, so I think that there are a number of other uh, influences which I think will keep inflation at bay. Um, not least of which is wages, which I'll come on in a minute. But I think that, uh, you know, for now, the 10-year Treasury at 160 seems eh, about where it should be, uh, given the outlook and given the fact that, remember, the Fed has pinned rates at the short term with the Fed funds rate, which is just an overnight bank rate, uh, at 0%. But they're also targeting um, uh, different yields. Well, they haven't explicitly said this, but, you know, the two-year rate, I think, is 11 basis points or something like that. So... Uh, you know the uh, and there was a uh, a negative one month bill um, auction the other day. So, you know the the short term rates are incredibly low, and that means it's difficult, I think, for the long term rates to pull away from that kind of gravitational pull of the short term rates being anchored so low. Now we have seen some uh, you know price indicators. I think pressures is a bit too strong. This is the one which got a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks. And this is the ISM. I mentioned them earlier. And one of the things they ask uh, these manufacturing and non-manufacturing companies is, what do you see about for, for prices that you're paying for? Not what you're gonna pass on to the, to the consumer, what you're paying for. So if you're a manufacturer, you know, what are you paying for your lumber or your steel or your gasoline or you know, whatever kind of major inputs you can think of in manufacturing. And if you're a non-manufacturing company, what are you paying uh, for, you know, your heat or uh, your rent and things like that. Um, and these price in, so this is just their forward thinking about the prices that they're having to pay. And you can see the check mark up on the right hand side is pretty abrupt from a year ago. So, you know, these were uh, 40, 50, no one was really seeing any price pressure a year ago. Surprising, not surprisingly, most of the economy was shut down. So no one's really gonna pass on uh, price increases if they've got a huge amount of capacity and no one's coming to buy anything. Uh, but recently, they, those have ticked up from, you know, a pretty low level. Now, you can see that they've been this high before, um, you know, 08, 09, uh, the manufacturing one, you know, back in 2010. And in both, in all of these cases, when it was anything like these heights, it was not followed by higher uh, consumer price inflation or producer price inflation or personal consumption expenditure inflation, PCE, which is the one the Fed, Fed um, um uh, follows. So this is just a kind of, you know, yeah, it's out there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll see inflation coming through in finished goods. And I think the, the uh, connection between the two is far too slim to suppose that just because we're seeing this number, you know, we're going to see higher inflation across the board in the next few months. But this is certainly one that's been catching people's eye over the last uh, month or so. House prices have been running at about five and a half percent. Again, you can see that Big decrease. They were essentially a flat a year ago. We've talked about housing before. Uh, there's been uh, a much higher demand for housing. That's people trading up. They need more room because the kids are at home more because they're not going to school or they need a more uh, a permanent study place as opposed to using kitchen table. Um, or they're moving out of cities, although I think that that's um, 
some of that second homes and you know, that's that's not really a big exodus but there are also definitely some people you know moving around but the big thing remember is that you know the house price house demand uh, far exceeds house supply housing supply um you know new homes take a while to sort of get going get up to the rates which people want them at and in many parts of the country including around here you know there's big restrictions on putting up new housing crazy social policy but there you go. It essentially means that it pushes up house price inflation. I think these will start to um, to ease off a little bit, not not least because I think a lot of the big moves have been uh, or already happened, and uh, and mortgage rates uh, have started to increase a bit. Because at the beginning of the year, the mortgage rates were all pegged off, pegged off the ten year were probably just under three percent. I'm guessing for under for a thirty year. Now they're more like three point three, three point five. I mean, that's still below the rate of increase in a house price. So, you know, buying a mortgage, you're buying a real asset, which is increasing more than what you're paying for it. Uh, but that's enough to tip people who might have just qualified or just been able to make it you know, with a higher with a higher mortgage payment. They're just backing out of the market. So we expect the uh, some of the housing numbers, whether it's uh, new uh, housing starts or uh, purchases of new homes or purchase of existing homes to flatten out a little bit. Uh, this is a big one. This has got a lot of attention, quite rightly so. This is lumber prices. So the average, you know, the average house in the United States costs about two hundred thousand dollars to make one, maybe a little bit higher, two hundred twenty thousand dollars, let's say. And it used to be that the uh, the the construction costs were about. This is aside from the land costs, but the construction costs were about twenty thousand dollars. Sorry, the lumber costs were about twenty thousand dollars of the construction costs. So the material. To put into a house, the lumber cost you twenty thousand dollars. Well, now it costs fifty, sixty thousand dollars, just because there's been this enormous spike in lumber. Uh, now, some of this is that tariffs were put on. I mentioned this before, which screwed up the whole market. Uh, some of those have e eased off. Um, so there was you know, importing from Canada was uh, was more difficult. But the big thing is that you know uh, um, uh, uh, lumber mills uh, got really scared. Uh, out of their minds in 2008, 2009, because the housing uh, market obviously collapsed and, and new starts went from 2.2 million to less than 800,000. So a lot of them were sitting for a long, long time. That's made them very wary to expand more um, than they feel is prudent. Uh, so I think what's happening in the lumber market, a little bit of a bottleneck, is that uh, housing uh, builders you know, and suppliers kept their inventories low. There was this pickup in demand. The mills didn't fully come through with all, didn't expect the demand to last. So they didn't have, you know, as much capacity open as they used to. So they jacked up prices and it's just a standard sort of uh, supply demand problem. But I do think this will ease down a bit, a bit because with these types of lumber prices, the mills are very incentivized to open up capacity, bring more people into work, you know, open up idle plant make new plant if they have to so i do think that this is very dramatic price increase but it's uh but it's again you know part of the housing story and part of the fact that you know the market almost pretty much closed down if you see that in the beginning of 2020 you know the uh the lumber price is uh you know almost halved from about 450 to 200 so so this is a kind of a pickup from that and then just uh you know the spot rates getting up but i think this will ease the other thing that's going to happen is that this is the one-year inflation number, 1.65. This is just the, the core one. Uh, there's another number tomorrow. I think it will be a little bit higher, uh, but not aggressively so because we kind of got the these weird base effects. Even if prices don't change at all for the next two or three months, we'll record a year-on-year -year inflation number, the headline number. This isn't the headline number. This excludes the energy and food. Of about two, two and a half percent. That's it. No price changes, you know, on a monthly basis, just because of the what it's comparing it to twelve months ago. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I think it'll be a little bit higher tomorrow uh, than one point six five, but I don't think it's going to surprise way to the upside. If we saw core CPI tomorrow at two and a half, two and a half, that putting a bit of a dent in the bond market, possibly the equity market, but I don't think it's going to be that high. Not that we've got any bets to depend on that coming out. And then we've got here. Put in just some uh, uh, the CRB is just a commodity spot index that throws in a bunch of different commodities: hard, soft, food, 
metals, um, you know, lumber, nickel, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, they have increased about 45%, as you can see, but I think, again, that's partly from where they were 12 months ago when uh, everything collapsed. So we've got a couple of inflation indicators in there. And if I feel like I'm, I'm sort of like just dismissing them as being temporary, uh, I think that they, they are there. I'm not sort of wishing them away, but I just don't really think that, you know, they're going to last as in they're going to jump to a four, four, four percent plus uh, inflation level, you know, for for a long time. I think that's what you should be worried about as an investor, not you know, transitory, whatever they call, you know, temporary uh, spikes in inflation, which is very much what we're getting. Um, this is the important one. Now, the employment cost index. Now, let me just kind of take you through this. This is very interesting. This black number is the average, uh, black line is the average hourly earnings. And they spiked, uh, you know, last year. This is actually a, um, a, a, a logarithmic uh, chart. So this number, about a year ago, average hourly earnings were increasing about 8%, which freaked everybody out. But uh, as we mentioned at the time, that's because the lower paid people lost their jobs in a much higher proportion than normal average or higher paid people. It's dropped out of the market. So people, you know, with an average uh, weekly wage of 400, 500, 600, as opposed to the average, which is 1100, just came out. Uh, so you were left with a pool of people who were, you know, higher paid, and it looked like they'd all had pay increases. Well, they hadn't. It's just that the, you know, a large majority of the population, 20 million, 22 million people lost their jobs, and so they weren't counted anymore. Now the reverse is happening. So last Friday, what we saw was this 0.33%. So what, what was happening was some of the people, again, particularly in the leisure and hospitality industries, were coming in from the bottom and getting back their $400, $500 a week. And so they're now back in the pool. So it looks like average hourly earnings have only increased about 0.3%, which is actually one of the lowest numbers out here for the last uh, 15 years. But again, we've got to wait for this to kind of sort itself out. You've got a workforce which looks like more like it should be, uh, and with you know more more of the workforce in place for a longer period to figure out what's happening with average hourly earnings. Uh, but they're not rising at eight percent last year, and they're not rising at 0.3 percent right now. The number's probably pretty much what this blue number is, which is about 2.73 percent. Now we only get these, these are called the employment cost index. We only get those quarterly, whereas we get the average hourly earnings uh, monthly. Um, but it does show that as of the first quarter, you know, in, employers were not looking at uh, huge amounts of wage costs. Now these, these could change, but 2.73% is, uh, is what it was pre the uh, GFC, the great financial crash. Uh, a little bit higher than what we saw in uh, 2010 to 2016, but boy, again, nothing really to uh, get too concerned about. But you'll hear a lot about this as well. And I, again, trying to show that this is different from a year ago, but not necessarily different from five, uh, 10 years uh, averages. Now, the April job numbers were way too low. There's no two ways uh, about that. Again, this kind of weird graph, which has got this strange, uh, y-axis on the right hand side so here's the 22 million people uh, that lost their jobs in uh, in uh, february march of last year uh, we've gone back to levels that have you know hit as high as 900,000. but last friday was at 266,000. a lot of people were expecting more like seven eight hundred thousand 266,000 is a perfectly good number in a normal recovery so this is exactly what it was for most of this period um somewhere between 150 to 260,000. so why was it so low. Well, a couple of before I go on to that, I just say you know, the uh, the unemployment rate, the real unemployment rate, the published one is six point one. The real one's about ten point four. It's come down a little bit, but it's probably still about under understated. So what happened with those payrolls? Well, first of all, it's one month. There's an awful lot of noise that can happen in one month. When new farm payrolls used to be one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand you would see regular revisions of 25 to 50,000 up or down in the next couple of months. Uh, and they get revised heavily. There isn't a single non-farm payroll print which has not been revised uh, by at least 20,000 in the last 20 years. So the first cut is a little bit of an average before they kind of get all the you know, final numbers in. So there is a plus or minus on this number of probably around 50,000. So you know, it's kind of settle down. These can be very noisy, um, and um, so we need a couple more months to see if there's a trend here. 
The second one point I, point I, I would make is that COVID is still around. And uh, if you're in a profession or want to go back to a profession where you're potentially very exposed to it, nursing home care obviously comes to mind. There's plenty of others, which I'm sure you can think of. You know, it's still a risk to go to work. Um, and the survey for the April jobs numbers, which published last Friday, was done on April the 12th. And that was before the universal vaccines came in. Up to that point, it was sort of like, a, uh, you know, the most uh, immediate in need. You probably had them yourself. It was okay, we'll do people in the 70s and then the 60s and people with other afflictions and people who are, uh, you know, maybe got comorbidities. Um, and it wasn't until, gosh, I think, the third, at least the third week, maybe later, where kind of, you know, universal vaccines came in. So, uh, you know, a lot has changed in the one month and the vaccination rate, as I mentioned before, is up 40 million in the, in the last month. Um, and I don't think that would have been picked up in, the, uh, in a survey. Now, there is still a mismatch in skills and locations. So, you know, some jobs may be open where people, uh, you know, aren't, uh, they're not located near them, or most importantly, they can't get to them. I mean, transportation capacity has dropped by a lot. Now, uh, I mean, I've looked at the New York subway uh, numbers, they're still 20, 25% below. You know, I'm sure things like buses and trains are on limited schedules. So there is really a, you know, a, a problem in that people might want to uh, take up work, um, uh, but they're not necessarily in the right place or they can't kind of get to it quite yet. That will even out, but it's still, you know, still uh, an issue right now. Uh, women in the labor force, this is just sort of heartbreaking, really, to, to talk about the um, uh, labor partition of women, which, which peaked 20 years ago, has been declining ever since. But it's, uh, it's, it's way below um, uh, what it was even a year ago. So we're still about 8 million jobs less uh, um, from a year ago. So we had 20 new million people who, who lost their jobs. Some people exited the workforce. But the number of women in the workforce was about five million higher a year ago. So, um, so that's still, uh, um, you know, why it's uh, you know obviously uh, home care falls a lot more on women than men. Um, it, again, it might be the kind of jobs are there, but um, but you know the that 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 will kind of rectify itself, I think, over time as some of, some of these issues go away. You know, many people are just stuck. Uh, schools aren't open can't afford childcare because there aren't any childcare. So, you know, you can't go to work. It's simple as that. I mean, uh, and, and until you see some of this all opening, I think, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be too surprised here because the opening is not gonna be the same as the closing. Closing a year ago is like a steel door came down, shut everything up, shut everything down. But people aren't gonna go back just like that, just because they say, well, the vaccine rate is fine and you know you don't have to wear a mask in Texas anymore. So it's gonna be a gradual opening because people have got to sort of you know fix all the living and work standards, which they've had for the last, uh, uh, you know, for the last year or so. So again, I think that will begin to rectify itself uh, as some of these uh, things ease up, particularly the school side. But you know what it's emphatically not about, and I'm sorry, but I'm gonna just, just dwell on this for a second here, is that there's excessive, excess uh, unemployment insurance benefits. So the story goes here, it's a bit like the old welfare queen accusations from the, from the uh, 1980s, is that you know, people are sitting at home with their unemployment checks, uh, plus the $300 supplement, plus they got a $400, $1,400 payment, and they just don't wanna to go to work. Well, that's just patently not true. Anyone who's been out of work for a while or been on unemployment benefits know that these don't remotely come close to what, uh, to what a full-time job um, can offer. The average unemployment benefit is about $20,000 a year. Um, the average wage is $52,000. So, uh, you know, maybe at the margins, there are a few people who, you know, maybe younger people who take the summer off, but really the unemployment insurance benefits, you know, range from $70 a week um, in places like Oklahoma, Oklahoma, I can't remember who's the lowest, but one of those states, uh, it, might, it might be um, Louisiana, but, uh, you know, to a high of maybe three or 400 in Oregon or Washington, I can't remember what it is. So, um, so they're all over the place, but, but mark this, they're, they're, those are just averages and they're based off prior pay. So 
uh, you know, there's no way people are getting, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars just to sit at home. Uh, and I, you know, last year there was a survey done when the supplement was 600, not 300. And it showed unequivocally that people were looking for jobs as hard as they could. They did not want to be, uh, you know, just taking unemployment benefits. They didn't want to lose contact with the labor market. And that's very important. If people lose contact with the labor market, their skills atrophy or the people they knew move on or the bosses, you know, rehire and, and don't hire them because they weren't around. Uh, that's a real fear for people. So I think that this is a very much overblown statistic here. Yeah, sure. You know, there were some people who said, well, I can't, I, I have a restaurant and I can't find people to, uh, um, to, to work it. And there's plenty of anecdotes like that. But I'd say that, you know, those anecdotes don't sum to, you know, an entire workforce of uh, 156 million people. Um, and it also suggests that those, com that those companies probably need to uh, increase their, their wages a little bit. You know, a lot of them are still playing. Um, $7 uh, still um, minimum minimum wage in this country, but it's $2 for restaurant workers. So, you know, I would say that that supply demand issue probably has to rectify itself. But uh, those are my thoughts on it. But I think uh, the takeaway from here is that the, the payroll numbers, let's give them a few more months before we freak out and say that it's not, you know, 250,000 isn't enough. 250,000 isn't enough, but I think it will come back to a higher number. Um, yeah, this is just another way of saying actually what I just said. The, 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 this is the US employment ratio. So, you know, back in the late 1990s, is when women participation was peaking, 64% of the population was working. It crashed in the GFC to about 58%, climbed steadily back up. Then we hit COVID, it plummeted to 51, and today is 57. So I think it's going to recover a little bit. This is just the, the, the population of the United States. Again, not the kids, not, you know, uh, not the people in institutions, which is the military and stuff like that. But, um, but it's, uh, it's it, uh, and the number of people working at that. So uh, you, know, you never get 100% because some people are too old, some people are too young, some people are in the wrong place, some disabled and so on. But, uh, but the, the, um, it obviously peaked at a much higher number than it is right now. And I think it'll start coming back. Uh, and then the unemployment rate's about 6.1. So these, not normally you'd expect uh, these to, you know, <laughs> move a little bit you know separate from each other right now they're kind of converging in the middle so i think the you know the labor supply still needs to you know get back in balance which is what i've talked about before now labor demand is actually pretty high so we had this morning the job opening numbers for march these these job opening numbers are always a month later than the actual non-farm payrolls so we've got here we go 8.1 million they've only been doing this statistic since 2000 they don't go further back than that you see there's 8.1 million jobs open right now, and there's about nine and a half million people unemployed. So that's a very high ratio of, uh, you know, this is the number of, uh, down here, uh, I've put the, uh, um, the, the ratio of um, job openings to the number of people unemployed. So if theoretically, if there's nine million people unemployed and nine million job openings, it's kind of one, one to one. And it's a little bit less right now, but it's a, it's a, it's a lot higher than it was for, you know, six or seven years after the GFC. So it's, uh, you know, so the labor demand is out there. Again, it, uh, why isn't it being filled? I think it's all the reasons I just discussed. And I, I think we've got to give it a little bit of time. But this shows me that, uh, you know, companies are beginning to say, hey, we need, we need workers. Now they might have a problem in that they're not paying enough, especially if you've got to wrestle someone away from home who's putting up, who's thinking, well, uh, I've got to pay childcare. Childcare in the Bay Area is some astronomical number, so you've got to clear that. Um, and uh, you know the the other kind of break evens. Well, I got to get to work, and I've got to uh, you know buy, buy other services that I wouldn't do if I if I'm not working. So you know it might be the fact that the you know uh, employers are uh, are just not paying right enough uh, enough right now. But uh, but the good side of this, at least the you know the demand for labour is uh, is is in pretty good shape. Now, GDP, these numbers were, uh, were 4% and 6% a year ago, I, uh, sorry, a month ago. So we were looking at a 4% GDP. This is this blue um, bar, second to the end. And then they, uh, since then, the first quarter numbers have come out at, uh, at 6%. So that was higher than most people uh, thought. And right now, the Atlanta uh, GDP now, guys who take a kind of spot estimate of, uh, of what GDP they think is going to be GDP. If you kind of look at their numbers, they revise them up and down. It doesn't look like they have a lot of relationship to the blue numbers, but they do by the end of the quarter. So right now, 
uh, the, the Atlanta GDP is fairly bullish and expecting second quarter GDP to be at 11%. Uh, I, I would say it's probably gonna be near 11 than six just because of the, of the reopenings and we're still early into the quarter, we've got another two and a half months to go. So, uh, but I think this is all very good sign that the GDP and growth is heading in the right direction. Uh, this is the, uh, the level of savings. Uh, it's just kind of mind boggling here. You, the savings ratio is the yellow line. So normally it ticks along, depending on if there's a recession or not, it's lower obviously in non-recessionary times. Um, but the savings ratio in the US has been four or 5% for as long as I can remember, way beyond before this 1991. So the last uh, 12 months, it goes absolutely haywire. You know, a spiking as high as 30%, then down when the employment benefits weren't, um, weren't extended. That's some, from about uh, June, July last year through till December. Uh, so savings were run down to 15%, still twice, nearly three times what they used to be. And then the last personal income and outlays report for uh, March are 27%. So again, it's this issue that, you know, people are at home and earning, but not spending, or they receive benefits the $1,400 stimulus checks, and they're not able to, uh, to, to spend them. So they're saving them. Um, some of them saving out of fear, some of them favor, saving them out of necessity, some paying down debt, some just because uh, there, there's really not a lot of opportunity to spend it. But what's showing up here is the personal savings, you know, $6 trillion. Now, <laughs> US GDP is $22 trillion. So there's a kind of, uh, you know, $6 trillion, which is not being deployed into the economy right now. Now that number won't go to zero, of course, you can see that if you kind of look back at it, you know, maybe uh, maybe one trillion is, is more of a kind of a normal uh, savings number, but uh, depending on the level of interest rates. But uh, this is obviously a heck of a lot of spending power and some of it's gonna find its way into the economy, not just some of it, quite a lot of it. Now, uh, let's turn our view to the uh, stock market. So we kind of got a good GDP, uh, a questionable uh, payroll number, uh, but I think it's gonna get better for the reasons I mentioned, huge consumer number um, and, and savings number sort of pent up. So how are we doing in the equity markets? Well, uh, some areas are definitely um, uh, in bubble territory. For those of you, I, I couldn't watch it, but uh, some of you might've watched Saturday Night Live with Elon Musk, where he talked about Dogecoin, sometimes pronounced another way, and it was a hustle. Um, but you've kind of got this, these, these bubbles in a number of areas. Uh, electronic vehicles is certainly one of them. There's about 20 companies in the electronic vehicle space, of which Tesla's the most famous one, but certainly not the only one, you know, which have had incredible runs. Uh, but this is from the Fed's and uh, quarterly financial stability report, which came out yesterday. It's kind of interesting reading. Um, um, I invite you to look at it in the federal, on the Federal Reserve um, uh, site if you have time. But anyway, they do talk about asset prices. They're not, people think they're indifferent to what the stock market's done. They're not, they're very, they pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, housing markets as well. So this is one of their kind of lines from yesterday. Valuation for some elevates, assets are elevated relative to historical norms. Asset prices may be vulnerable to significant decline should risk appetite fall, which do I would say, oh yeah, that is exactly right. Um, and so I've taken here just some of the more bubble aspects. I mean, there are others, but here we've chosen, uh, you know, first of all, this top line is the ARC Innovation ETF. Now you might've heard about ARC, essentially they're highly concentrated tech growth. They own companies like Tesla and Square and uh, uh, battery makers, and I can't remember what else, uh, but very, very concentrated. So an ETF might only have 30 or 40 holdings in it. Um, and they've done very well, but, um, you know, they're, they're full of highly volatile, high, high beta, very highly valued uh, stocks. So um, back in February, you know, if you bought, you bought it, say at 158, it's worth 107 hours, quite a big correction for an ETF, um, hell of a big correction, actually. And then the other one is uh, the IPO index, is a, uh, an ETF which just invests in IPOs. So, um, so obviously it's trailing, it's picking up all the IPOs from the last year. I think, it's, I think it's, it just sells them after two years. But uh, again, you know, the peak of that was about 140 in February. Now it's 103. And then the final one is there's an ETF. There's an ETF for everything, unfortunately. Some of them are really pretty dangerous vehicles. But this one is an ETF which just invests in SPACs. Now these SPACs, again, are just empty shell companies waiting to 
buy a company and get a reverse uh, listing. Um, but when you buy them, you're just buying a bunch of cash. And then depending on what they end up buying, you end up with a company which may or may not have a future. But uh, so they are kind of speculative because you don't know what you're buying. Uh, and again, you, the, the peak of that was about 142 again in February and today the 95. So, you know, these are big losses. Um, and there are other ones as well. But again, I don't think it's quite, it's not broadly spread around, but as you know, and if you follow the crypto space in any way, shape or form, you know that there's been similar stories over there. Um, this one I've showed you a couple of times, but this is the 2020. Um, this is the S&P uh, index versus the equal weighted index. So the equal weighted is just the 500 stocks and every stock is weighted 0.2%. Whereas in the other normal uh, S&P 500, you get five stocks which are, which are worth 16, 17%. I think the, uh, you know, the, uh, the large tech stocks and everything um, are even higher than that. So, um, so, so one is much more concentrated than the other. So what we've seen recently is that you know, last year was very much a story of the, of, of the large caps beating you know, everybody, the average, the average uh, S&P 500 stock. That's reversed. In the last six months, we've seen the average uh, U.S. stock quoted stock up 120, up 27 percent, and the S&P, which is market cap weighted, up 19. So that's good news. What does it tell you? It just tells you that, that more companies are participating in this rally, and that's a good thing. You know, last year, you know, we we're talking about oh, this is a good market, but it's very, very focused in five, six, seven, ten plays, um, and uh, and now. Um, you know, we're seeing it, you know, broaden out. And that's been the story for a while. Glad to see it. Um, yeah, I'll skip this one. Uh, this is still a similar story. Uh, but we've also seen market cap rotation for us. Uh, you know, last year, um, the, uh, the S&P was, the, which is the bottom one here, the top, the, actually that's the top five companies. And then you've got the S&P as the red number. Uh, we're, we're way ahead of the small cap and mid cap. And now that's reversed again. So. Um, you know, for the last six months, the, S the small caps are up 34%, mid caps up 29%, whereas the top five stocks are only up 13 which is, I know only is, is kind of a funny word to put in front of a 13% return in six months, but, um, but we have seen this big rotation out of small caps, and it's taken a bit of a breather recently. You can see this line has essentially gone sideways since March, but we think we still, that's uh, still got more legs to run. And then sector rotation as well. So sorry, it's a pretty, pretty ugly chart here, but the top chart is what happened in 2020. So down here, you've got consumer um, consumer discretionary. I can't remember what the C stands for, but anyway, these are the Amazons um, and Apple, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Amazons and uh, Netflix, um, and then technology areas. So the, these, uh, these were up 35, 40%, and they had telecoms dragging its heels, consumer staples, uh, you know, uh, and other and others, um, you know, up fifteen uh, percent. Now look at twenty twenty one year to date. It's seen a complete reversal. So energy didn't even make this top ten here. Uh, it's up forty five percent, which is much as the tech stocks were up uh, last year. So there's been a big a big change around the uh, 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 around the uh, leadership and industry of the market, which again is good. But we we don't want to see a market which is led by a narrow group. Of companies, that's fine in a in a revival because some going some are going to be faster off the mark than others out of a recession. But uh, if you see a market which is too top heavy, it's a bit risky. But it's broadened out. And also this one, which is the cyclical stocks. This is the D Dow Jones Transportation Index. So this is thing full of things like airlines, FedEx, UPS, uh, JB Hunt, which makes trucks. You probably see them on the road. Kirby, which makes barges. Get on the Mississippi. You know, anything which kind of moves stuff from A to B. CSX, I think, is one of the uh, one of the railroad stocks is in there. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's been a you know a much stronger performer than the S and P again over the last uh, five or six months. This is this is kind of the cyclical, broader parts of the market, um, you know, coming back. So in a market like last year, you know, Facebook grabs all the advertising. In a market like this year, JB Hunt is moving stuff for everybody. It's moving stuff. You know, for industrial companies, for manufacturing companies, for service companies, for you know, furniture people, always not people, but for furniture, uh, you know, and um, you know, big big items like that. So you know, it's it's indication of a much broader uh, recovery, which is again what we want to see. 
I'll talk a little bit about corporation tax. I think it's complete red herring, the whole corporation tax. You know, for most of the uh, post-war era, corporation tax was even higher than I'm showing here. Here it was in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, never much below about 30%. This is the effective rate. The actual rate is higher than this, but if you, corporate, corporate tax is unlike personal income tax. You can make it lower by spending more and investing more. You can't do that with your income tax. Um, so, you know, companies never paid the full amount which is fine because they're investing and, and paying people and they've got lots of tax deductible expenses. But uh, you know, you'd be hard pressed to see any link between the corporation tax rate uh, and the S&P. You know, they just don't seem to uh, be affected one way or the other. And I believe that that's still the case today. When we saw uh, the Trump tax cuts take it from, I don't know, like 35 maybe, uh, the statutory rate, in fact, it was, it was more like you know, 15, 16 on the effective rate. They took it down to 21. Um, what happened was you just saw more share buybacks. And, uh, and, but that kind of was pretty ephemeral. It was kind of over in six months. Um, so I think you know, with, the, with, with the S&P 500 companies paying 12.85%, if the rate goes up to 25%, which is what I think the senator from West Virginia wants, uh, or 28, which is what Biden wants, it's going to make very little difference to this. Also, 95%, only 5% of US companies are corp incorporated. 95% of businesses are LLCs or S corporations which pass on their income to, uh, to owners through personal tax rates. So this is not a big deal if corporate, uh, corporate taxes go up to 25, 26%. Although I've seen some analysis which try to just chops it right in and says, well, that means earnings per share are gonna be down 10 or 15%. I just don't believe it uh, just because, um, you know, just. If you're a good CFO, you can manage your uh, corporate tax rate uh, to a lower rate. So I think that's something not to worry about. Um, this is to kind of look at our, our, our really our only valuation metric in here. So there's dozens of ways to value the equity market. No single one is bulletproof, but kind of like this one, which is the uh, the earnings yield, which is just the price earnings ratio inverted, and we just take away the inflation rate. Sorry, the uh, the um, the uh, ten year ten year bond. Uh, so it's about 3% right now. <clears throat> so a little bit cheaper than it was actually final off two or three weeks ago because um, rates have come down. Um, it's not out of line. I mean, you know, you could get your scale yourself and say, well, it's, you know, it's uh, the, the lower the number, the more, the more expensive the market is. And so it's not down to where we were in 2000, thank God. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not uh, incompatible with uh, with the market, you know, going steadily along. And I think that's just generally the story that, you know, you, you can take the CAPE, the cyclically adjusted PE2, um, again, quite high, but doesn't necessarily mean, mean that the next five or 10 years are going to be flat. So I think we have to accept the fact that valuation is a little bit high, but not to the point where they're in nosebleed territory and screaming itself. So let me wind up here. Uh, I think the fiscal stimulus will be less than the headline. Obviously, there's some bargaining and negotiation going on. It seems like the White House has been pretty open to that. Uh, you know, the, the Republicans have come up with their own infrastructure bill. I'm sure they're gonna meet in the, in the middle somewhere. Something's gonna be done. A consumer is ready, is ready to spend, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you can't just open up suddenly and you know, anticipate 12 months of you gotta wear a mask, 12 months of You've got to stay distant from people. 12 months of don't gather, you know, 12 months of stay at home, 12 months of, you know, all these things which happen, which shock people, uh, you know, can't just uh, open up quickly. So I think we have to accept the fact that the opening up, while positive and, and slowly coming our way, is not going to be sudden. Although I do think the next couple of months, we're going to see a big, uh, a big revival in, in consumer spending because based on that amount of savings that we have. Inflation will talk will persist. But the thing to look for is wage growth. And so far that's been pretty non-existent. It could tick up, but I, again, I'm kind of with the Fed on this. I think a lot of it will be transitory. If it stays at three or 4% for you know, four to six months, then we might have a problem. The Fed will, will hike rates, but uh, I just don't think that that's likely um, in the, in, I just don't think it's likely. Supply will come back on the, on the market for the reasons I described. Uh, again, people are kind of reorienting themselves to a different set of circumstances in the labor market. The Fed's going to stay on this. Uh, we're going to stay low. We're going to continue to look, stay low with rates. We're going to stay um, with, uh, with uh, you know, zero rates. They'll 
they'll signal on the QE side way before they do anything with rates. So their first thing is going to be, well, we're going to you know, not reinvest the coupons on the Fed balance sheet, which is, you know, we've got $6 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. Then they'll talk about, you know, cutting back the monthly purchases from the $120 billion level. Uh, then they might talk about, um, you know, just a, a, different, uh, a different type of uh, QE uh, portfolio. And then they'll talk about raising rates. And then they'll raise rates. So we could be taking, talking a long way out. This, they do not want a repeat of the 2013 temper tantrum. Fed temper tantrum where the market and the Fed misread each other. So I think this will be incredibly uh, you know, well telegraphed. We've got a pretty transparent Fed right now under Powell. The market has, has, has some bubbles. I think caution is definitely uh, you know, a watchword worth keeping. Um, we should be patient with the market. I do, I do think that uh, you know, we're kind of overdue for the market to go sideways for a little bit. It's been very strong through this earnings season, but I think uh, um, I think it's in fundamentally good shape. There's no reason why we shouldn't have a, a little bit of a pause uh, for the next few months. Good. Uh, well, thank you for uh, your patience here. I'm going to just switch this off. And um, I know we have uh, uh, a capability for some questions. I think there's a question um, uh, text uh, or chat um, if, if anyone has one. And uh, Carolyn, I don't know if you can hear me. Should I, should I just uh, uh, thank everybody for their time? And uh, if you have any questions which occur to you. Oh. Yes, Christian, uh, no questions at this moment. So we can sign off if you're ready. Okay. Well, thanks everybody. And again, just uh, feel free to barrel questions in to, to me uh, at Cthwaites, C-T-H-W-A-I-T-E-S, at B&J Advisors or your financial advisor. You know, there's always there's ways to get through to us or, or on our website. Um, and thank you very much for your patience and I look forward to speaking to you next time. In this commentary are only several of the successful as well as unsuccessful investments by us and do not represent all the securities we have purchased, sold or recommended. Although we deem reliable the sources of statistical and other information referred to in this commentary, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data. Past performance is no indication of future results. Thank you.